Today I welcome John Ray, Head of School at Mulgrave School in Vancouver, Canada. In this episode, I discuss well-being, positive psychology, character education, future school thinking, and blowing up your library. I want to talk about well-being because I know that student well-being is central to your outlook as an educator and leader. It also forms one of the three pillars of Mulgrave's new strategic plan. Personalization, the skills development of the other two, but the three seem intertwined. Why these three pillars and how do they intersect at Mulgrave? Thanks, Simon. Arthur's three strategic plan pillars are really foundation stones for our education here at Mulgrave. And in our new plan, we recognize that we needed to continue to strengthen those pillars, particularly at this time. We break personalization down into three different aspects. So we talk about personalization of learning, personalization of the curriculum, and personalization of student support. And of course, that's based on the fact that every young person is unique. And it's really critical that all aspects of education are tailored in a variety of ways to the individuals. So that's the kind of personalization bit. The second part, a school that believes in a holistic approach to education like we do, a commitment to well-being is absolutely essential. We've always known, and it's been confirmed in the pandemic, that unless well-being is intact, it really undermines other aspects of education, whatever the successes of personalization of. It's the same with the third area for us, which is about skill development. The acquisition of key transferable skills is fundamental to happiness and success at school life, at school and, and life beyond. And some of these skills will have an impact on a young person's ability to maintain well-being and others on their ability to capitalize on the benefits of personalization. In Mulgrave's new strategic plan, we've highlighted three skills for specific focus. They are for us creativity, including creative thinking, global citizenship skills, entrepreneurial skills, which again, we think will benefit these other areas. Yeah, and they are three great skills that you need. And I know that the World Economic Forum, they often release the top five skills that employers are looking for. You know, and it is around creativity, problem solving, critical thinking. I love the fact that you do have well-being. I think people need to be at the center of everything. And I think they're often missed, particularly when it comes to technology, is we throw technology in and hope that it's going to solve all our problems. But we are not evolving as fast as technology can and ever will do. And so what we're finding now is, I mean, well-being, it feels like it's been a bit of a buzz for a couple of years. Everyone's trying to do well-being initiatives and different things. But you've actually put it up front and center as part of your well-being program and your strategic plan. What role does well-being play in a thriving school community like yours? How central is it? I mean, it's important to emphasize we've not so much adopted a kind of well-being program Really, what we've done is we've embraced the centrality of well-being in our education and our philosophy. As I just said, kind of well-being is really crucial to happiness and success. Essentially, uh, happy young people who have a deep sense of well-being are much more likely to enjoy school and perform at their personal best level. So well-being is embraced in our academic curriculum, in our student support systems, our co-curricular and enrichment programs but also, importantly, in our school ethos and values. I think with well-being now and 2021, and we talk about the generations and the, I think the generational boundaries, they're getting thinner and thinner. You know, I think there's a distinct generational boundary between my grandfather, my father, my father and me, and somewhat between myself and my kids. But then I look between my eldest child, who's now an adult, and my youngest, who's 10. I feel that there are four micro-generational boundaries in themselves. Technology is the bigger driver that's probably affecting this. 
how much do adults understand and how much time do you spend training, particularly teachers and parents, to ensure that they understand well-being for this generation as obviously well-being for them? Good question, Simon. I think, you know, in a school context, one of the key things is that the adults in the school community understand the importance of well-being and are able to use that uh, real focus on, on, on well-being as part of what they do. So, I mean, typically in many schools like our school, our student support systems are based on the kind of uh, homeroom teachers, junior school class teachers uh, roles. They're very focused on an overview of the holistic development of the students in their care. We really want uh, our teachers to help students understand who they are and to help them flourish as people. And typically, these teachers, homeroom advisors and class teachers check in regularly with the children uh, throughout the day, throughout the week, depending on the age. And essentially, their role is a counselling or, or a coaching one in which students are really asked to reflect on aspects of their well-being. And of course, if there are concerns and they are addressed by the individual teachers, and if there are particular concerns, and Mulgrave, like many schools around the world, you know, have access to uh, counselling services that will support students who are going through uh, particular issues. We also get good feedback about levels of well-being through student questionnaires that we run. So we, you know, we obviously talk to young people and talk to the students collectively in our community, but we run uh, surveys, which obviously help students when they're completing surveys to reflect on their well-being, but also it gives us important information about any of the well-being initiatives that we're running to see how really how successful they are. There is one aspect of well-being which I'll focus on just very quickly, Simon, and that's the concept of identity. There are many components of well-being, but one of the things that we're focusing on is trying to make sure that young people as they grow, and we're a school where we have children of three years old through to 18 years old, they really have a growing sense of their own identity. And they're really encouraged to explore their, you know, their cultural, racial background, their age, gender, religious identities, all at a, obviously at an age-appropriate level. And we've been really pleased about being able to integrate that work on identity, particularly you know, on the back of the things that have happened in the world around George Floyd and the, the heightened awareness around racism and, and other things. When it comes to the identity piece, you know, you talked about the different levels. I completely agree. I've always said when I speak is that we're all born original. So why live your life as a copy? You know, and the problem with education is that actually you end up being a copy because it's structured in a way that you go through this conveyor belt of education. I was going to ask about measurement, actually, because schools like measurement. They like to know that, are we any good at it? And how is this affecting maybe academic results? Is it too early to see whether or not and how well, like well-being is affecting academic outcomes? Or are you more interested in actually how the kids come across when they fill out those questionnaires? I mean, well-being is an end in itself, <laughs> as well as being a, a means to an end in terms of educational outcomes. And, you know, I think at this stage, I'm more interested in really looking at how students have a deep sense and understanding of their own well-being as an end in itself. If well-being is really strong and students have a really you know, positive sense of themselves, then of course they're going to be more happy at school. And if they're more happy at school, they're more likely to be able to perform well and do their personal best in academics and all other aspects of education. Yeah, a happy, confident child can achieve anything. And a happy, confident child becomes a happy, confident adult, you hope. We've all met many adults who are very academically capable, but not necessarily happy. And or have the confidence to show their skills just because of the potentially the conveyor belt. So 
yeah, identity, well-being, all the things that you do are really brilliant initiatives. And are they initiatives that are easily transferable to another school? So kind of the work that you're doing, can that be packaged up and shared and other people can leverage the inspiration, the work you've done? Sure. Yeah, I think so, Simon. Look, you know, we, we haven't really adopted, you know, a particular program here. But what we have done is we've taken the positive education framework. We use a framework which is based on the work of Martin Seligman and the whole kind of positive psychology approach. You know, sometimes that's referred to as the positive education curriculum. We kind of haven't adopted a curriculum, but we've adopted that framework. And the essential idea of that is that in helping students really flourish and have a deep sense of well-being, what we do is we help them to develop their various character strengths so that they can thrive in all the different aspects of well-being. And using the what is called the positive education PERMA approach, what we've done is we've identified those different aspects of well-being and are really working systematically on them. And I'll just mention what they are because I think that would be very interesting for your listeners. So well-being is based on having a positive sense of purpose. Well-being is based on being positively engaged, feeling positive about your own accomplishments, uh, having positive relationships, being able to manage your emotions, maintaining positive health, of course. And then at Mulgrave, in addition to those components, we really focused on this concept of having a positive sense of emerging identity, with the emphasis, of course, on emerging, because Young people's identity does emerge as they grow and develop. And look, I can tell you that it continues throughout life too. I'm still kind of learning about my own deep sense of identity. And me too. I think as soon as you stop learning and trying to understand, you don't really develop and grow. And I was actually on a podcast this morning with another head teacher talking about high performance learning and the growth mindset. Very similar to the positive education movement. You can see the impact it's having on the children. Moving forward, how do you adapt this to be still relevant and fit for purpose rather than it being an initiative we did and it works? Because, you know, we have to adapt to the world that's changing around us. And do you have these moments in time where you go, look, actually, now's a really good time to review. Is this still relevant and how do we maybe change it to fit the children of now? That's a good question. Look, you know, I think Good schools and, and good education systems have really acknowledged the importance of well-being forever. And I think there's been some very interesting work going on. I think the pandemic, of course, has really heightened everybody's awareness of well-being. We've seen so many young people struggling uh, with a whole range of different mental health issues uh, and issues of anxiety and so on. So the whole well-being thing, as you've referenced earlier, has come into a very sharp focus. And that's not going away. I mean, there aren't many positives in the pandemic, but the fact that well-being is now so central in everybody's minds means that this isn't just uh, you know, the flavor of the year this year. This is about now really embedding practices in schools which really support well-being and, and understanding that you know, whatever the other kind of demands and pressures of, of education, whether that's academics or whether it's being a high-performing athlete or, or whatever, you know, none of those things are really possible unless well-being is intact. So this isn't a one-off. This is something, I think, which we will all realise and we'll look back, actually, on, on something as being really important in terms of the basis of education. Yeah, and I do hope it does stay. And, you know, we don't suddenly get over it. We're back in school and we go, OK, now we're focused on the, the mountain and those results that we've got to get. Because I have seen firsthand, I've seen the negative impact that lockdown has had on my, on my kids, really, and my wife and me to a certain point, too. You know, I'm not immune to it, you know, having traveled the world, not being out, being caught, you know, stuck in, but seeing it from a, 
from the eyes of a, of a 13-year-old girl in the most important development probably years of her life, it's been really shocking, actually. And I do hope that we don't ignore this kind of wake-up call as we move out of the pandemic, as we move back into some kind of normality that does become embedded and it's talked about all the time because it's, it's still a very much, and I think more so in the UK, it's still a not subject that people like want to talk about you know, mental health or issues or depression or whatever it is, because it's kind of a sign of weakness and it's very British. Do you feel that people are talking about it more now and there's a sense of openness to discuss this without feeling judged? Absolutely, Simon. I I think there is. And certainly, you know, in in our context here in, in British Columbia, whether you're in the public system or the kind of more private independent school system, there's a lot of talk about mental health being connected to well-being. I don't think, I'm obviously from the UK, uh, you can tell from my accent originally, but I, I don't think there's the same levels of stigma around talking about emotions, talking about mental health and well-being here. And I think there's a, there's a real response and a, a real recognition of the fact that this has been a challenging couple of years, whether it's just general anxiety, whether it's social isolation, whether it's family conflict, all those things have, have, have arisen to a much greater level during the pandemic. And uh, we can't just assume, as you've referenced, that, that people can come back from that. We heard a phrase the other day, which is kind of interesting, is something called the cave syndrome. So we've all been in our caves for the last two years, socially and in other ways. And actually, you think people, when things are getting better, people would rush out of their caves and go back to where they were. But a lot of people are struggling to come out of their caves and have that social confidence that they need to really engage, whether it be in school or in life generally. And we found that here. I employ 50 people around the world. We kind of ran a remote business for 18 months or 20 months, getting people back. And it wasn't the sense that they didn't want to come back because of the worry about getting COVID. It was, it was a social anxiety. It was like, kind of, I'm, I'm used to this now. Slowly getting people back when they feel confident, then you realize actually the energy that people bring by being with people but it's not for everybody. And we're still transitioning staff back. And I'm sure we'll be transitioning back into 2022 as well, where we've got to judge each individual and go, okay, what works for you? And it can't just be the sledgehammer approach to this is my way. I want you all back and we're going to do with it. And it's the same, I think, with schools and managing that. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. We're well into the third year of COVID impacting teaching and learning and schools being open or not open. Looking back, what is the most significant insight you have discovered or found about yourself, the school and what you've done? We've talked through the well-being bit. I mean, I think that's probably been, you know, the most impactful thing is our, is our refocusing on, on well-being. There are other things too. I think we've recognized that, you know, we, we talk about transferable skills. And one of the skill sets that's come into really sharp focus in the last couple of years is that whole suite of skills, which we would describe as kind of executive functioning skills, you know, whether that be time management, efficient use of time, resilience, all those skills. And what we've realized is that with the uncertainty of what's going on in the pandemic, Young people and indeed adults have been required to call on that skill set, that executive functioning skill set of, you know, how do we deal with uncertainty? What skills can we fall back on in order to manage this very uncertain and challenging situation? That's been a real insight for us. 
And of course, the other one is, is around technology. And look, we haven't needed the pandemic really, again, to highlight this, but I think we've recognized that technology is a wonderful tool to enhance learning, but too much technology for many, many people just doesn't work. There was a time, Sam, you'll remember when we were talking about schools not continuing to exist because everything will be online. Well, you know, the experience of so many children and teachers with you know, forced online learning has not been positive for the vast majority of people. A lot of comes down to the people doing it and the way it's set up. And whilst schools could adapt to online learning and, you know, you think of a time before having access to the Internet and being able to do that. You know, if we had had this COVID 20 years ago, we'd not be in any position to carry on any form of education. I mean, it would be, you know, just I don't know how that would have been done. But even still, you know, we still have the technology, but technology isn't the saviour of it. It's often put in wrong or badly. We're not trained enough. And so what we ended up doing was relying heavily on the goodwill of these teachers who are passionate about teaching to go, you know, I will just do what I need to do. I have a tool now to do it. As you said, and as you referenced, not everybody got a really great experience. And there's some beautiful highlights where, you know, I talk about the super teacher where why should the few get inspired by the few? Like great teachers, why can't you? have those inspirational teachers in a subject area, in a grade, in a year group, being able to influence and and inspire the millions. And we ended up finding a few for my son because he's down in the prep school. He wasn't getting it and online. And so how do you teach them some basic things to enjoy? And so we ended up finding some better resources to do it. So I still think there's a place for it, but people need people. You know, you need to be there on the social side of learning. What are your thoughts about the future of education in itself? I mean, you've talked about what you're doing at Mulgrave, but if you were to fast forward 20 years, how different would it be? There's been a lot of talk about transformation in education, Simon. I mean, you've been very engaged in, in those discussions. My reflection is that there have been some attempts at transformation, and I'm not sure that too many of those attempts have proved successful. You know, there's examples around the world where people have taken a very different approach and actually it's not worked. So I take the view that change and continuous change to embrace how the world is developing is really important. And sometimes kind of radical change is necessary. But I kind of use this phrase, radical incrementalism. We can take small incremental steps. They can be radical, but transformation is probably not the way forward. And so, and of course, if you continue to take small radical incremental steps, then you may end up with a transformed product or a transformed school system or school, I take the view that education is developing and growing and improving in small steps. And there are some very interesting things going on around the world. I like to, like you, I mean, I read quite a lot about you know, some of the great thinkers around the future of schooling. And the, you know, the World Economic Forum came up with uh, you know, their four different scenarios for the future. And the one that I really like is the one which is around the concepts of community. And I come from a community school background in the UK. I was in a public system in a community, great community school in the southwest of England. I've kind of taken that concept. And, and actually, the World Economic Forum has picked it up as one of their scenarios that in future, uh, schools could be more of a community endeavor. And of course, there are pros and cons in that. We're kind of limited by our, our communities. But I like this concept of it. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. 
And for me, one of the one of the very interesting scenarios is the, the extent to which education is not the preserve of the teachers or the administrators in charge of schools, but education is the preserve of parents and of communities and community members. And I'm pretty excited by that. It is quite a kind of radically different idea to the way most schools work. It's something which we're trying to embrace much more here. And I think it's got real mileage. Community means people. You know, there was local community and then through technology, we get this global community that also can help shape and influence and inspire as you go forward. As you know, I've been talking about the future school for several years now. The idea is that schools need to be disruptive to prepare students for future jobs we can't even imagine. Margrave has reinvented the idea of a school library. You said the school blew up its library. Talk about disruptive. Don't worry, listeners, no explosives apparently were used. What does blowing up the library actually mean? First of all, that I'm a really strong advocate of the role that library services and library functions play in schools. But look, to be honest, Mulgrave, like many schools worldwide, has been really struggling with libraries in gradual decline in the age of digital resources, with usage by students and teachers really going down. And in the US, which is very close to where I am in Vancouver, we've seen school libraries being closed. We've seen public libraries being closed. And when I visit schools, whenever I go to schools, I very rarely see libraries or, you know, they're called, many of them are called learning hubs these days, you know, being really actively used in a really vibrant kind of way. And libraries all around the world have tried to make themselves more attractive by doing all kinds of wonderful things, you know, putting in Lego wars and 3D printers and board games, all kinds of things to get people through the doors in the hope that they might uh, use the human, physical, digital resources that, that, that are there. We did the same. We tried to make our library this really amazing place to go to, to do all kinds of things in the hope that people might also use the books and the digital resources there and, and use the librarians in the space. But we weren't getting anywhere, to be honest. You know, our library usage statistics were at best static, if not uh, going down in some areas of the school. So what we did was we kind of worked on this concept that If the people won't go to the library, let's take the library to the people. So a few years ago, we got rid of the dreaded North American lockers here in our school. So our hallways and corridors no longer have lockers in there. We've developed them, like many schools around the world, as learning spaces. So what we did was we took all of the resources in the library, including the librarian, by the way, and we relocated them into our hallways. So when you walk down the hallways and corridors at Mulgrave, they're lined with seating areas and uh, shelves of books. And what we tried to do was locate the books where they were most effective. So for example, all of the French language books, we teach French here, obviously we're a bilingual country in Canada. So the French language books are outside of the French room. And what we found is quite astonishing because the level of uh, usage and borrowing by the students has gone up 300% in the last couple of months. Early days, but it seems to be working. And so what was our former library space, we've actually just restructured into a huge makerspace, particularly for our younger children. We have a big makerspace for our older students, but for our younger children to have access to painting and making and designing technology and robotics, we've used the library space for that. But the most exciting thing about this was actually the the redesign of the library and the library function where students were learning and not as a place, a destination to go to. Absolutely love it. I think that's that whole idea and the way that you viewed things. I think, imagine us applying that to all functions within a school. 
immediately I'm thinking, you know, what, what else could you do? Is, is the cantina redundant space? You know, again, it's a destination. You go there and everyone does that, you know. Are we going to get the French food outside the French classroom because we've got the French books there? But I'll leave that for you and your students and your community to think of the next thing. Where else can schools maybe be disruptive to positively transform education like you've done with the library? Have you got any new ideas that you're thinking about or trialling in the, in the coming months? I want to just go back to technology for a bit, Simon, because, uh, you know, we've, we've learned a lot under, uh, under COVID and we learned a lot about, you know, technology. And, and the key thing we've learned is that some young people love using technology to enhance learning. Others, it's not effective. They don't like it. So what we're piloting at the moment is this idea that students can have some choice about how they learn. In our senior school at the moment, we've got a number of teachers who are piloting the concept that at certain times of the year, when you're doing a particular kind of unit of study, students can have the choice. They can either stay in the classroom and be taught in person by the teacher, or they can go off for three or four weeks and take all of the digital learning resources and online resources that the teacher has provided. And obviously, with teacher support in the background, can you know, kind of work through those materials and be responsible for their own learning without actually coming to class. It's kind of a really interesting idea. We didn't want to force children to go into online lessons like you see all these things going on around the world, but we wanted to give them the choice. And then so in some classes, we've got you know, maybe 75% of the students choosing to go kind of remotely online using all the resources. And in some classrooms, we've got 75% of the students choosing to stay in person. That's an interesting model. It's hard for the teacher because essentially they're, they're not only teaching full-time the people who are in the class in person, but they're also keeping an eye on the people who are online and, of course, have got to prepare all the resources so they're really u- usable. But we were quite along in, in terms of the digital resources supporting learning anyway in class. So it hasn't taken a huge shift, but it has been a mindset shift. And I'm quite interested in that, not only for you know, our 16, 17, 18-year-olds, but also potentially for some of the younger students, you know, 11, 12, 13, about really having this choice and deeply understanding their own learning. And that's where personalised learning really comes to the fore, where you are understanding the individual. You know, there will always be teething problems, you know, and duplication. It feels like there's a bigger overhead when it comes to teaching resources. But then the flip side is, is once you've created those great resources, those resources are available and actually it can, you can extend it outside of it. So then it becomes the future school that I always imagined that, you know, suddenly my children can get access to your teacher's resources to be able to self-study and learn something because it's exemplary piece. Wow. Um, it was wonderful to talk to you, John. Thanks ever so much. I'm now going to go and take my radical incrementalism home to the family. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you too. And uh, look, uh, if ever you get out to uh, Vancouver again, then uh, please stop in for a visit. Yeah. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.